Hello there, my friend. How are you? How does your heart feel right now? Open, closed, hurt, happy, a little bit of all of those? That's how mine feels, I think. A little bit of everything, resulting in a lot of feeling. Something hasn't quite been sitting right. I'm aware of it and I can feel it fairly keenly. There is a little unease in me, a little unsteadiness, in there with the good and the light and the love, which of course I am grateful for. But there is shadow too, and want, and pain, and anger. We have the capacity for all of it, at all times, each of us. I like to pretend sometimes that I don't, that I am impermeable. But that is hubris and folly. I am not above human emotion. Oof. What a phrase. Though I do not want to want things, I do not want to fill my head with thoughts of what I don't have. I speak so often of this that I feel the need to apologize. But while this is true, the fact is that I will never be free of want. To want not to want is a want in and of itself. Let's abandon this train of thought before it goes too far. Perhaps it is this trying to come to terms with my own emotions and wants, to love all of myself, including the shadowy, difficult parts, that holds the key. The key to what? I wonder. I know that I want, but I do not know what I want. There is a little pain, a little pang, but I don't know what will soothe it. This is where I asked my tarot cards for help. What do I want? I asked them before I shuffled. I thought, too, what does the forest want? But I think the question is one and the same at this point. I shuffled with the strangest level of confidence. This card goes here. Yes, this one next. Yes, three more shuffles, and then cut the deck right there, indeed. That's the one. When I flipped it, it was the Three of Swords. I knew it instantly because it is infamous. The Three of Swords is pain, sorrow, hurt, heartbreak, sadness. Most often because of another person, though not necessarily, of course. But the thing is, we cannot view it, as I always remind myself, as a negative card. It is a necessary part of life. In fact, we can grow so strong from the Three of Swords. I think the first step is to release the emotions it brings. Let them out. Look at them. Try to understand them and where they came from. Spend a moment with them. 
kiss them goodbye. Let them go. It will be all right. I have a story. Relax a little. The Three of Swords is not so scary. Relax your shoulders. Your jaw. Your eyes. Your stomach. Take a deep breath. Let's talk about someone else. There was once a woman who was hurt very badly by someone that she loved. I don't really want to tell you much more about her or about what happened. I will say that the hurts were all words. Just words. Words said in anger or in fear. Sometimes taken back later, but then thrown again and again and again until she couldn't take it anymore. And she disappeared. I don't mean that she literally disappeared, I mean that she left the situation that found her in such close quarters with this person in the first place. I could tell you that he had hurts of his own, and that's why he did it. But I won't because at the end of the day, our hurts are not others' responsibility to deal with. They may be another's responsibility to atone for, but only we can achieve our own healing. We are not here to tell a story of his pain. We are discussing her pain and what she did with it. She went to a location that was as distant and remote as she could possibly find. She got there on the strength of her sorrow and her anger, which actually provide a strange kind of fuel, I think, and push us to places we might not normally go in joy and calm. At the top of a cliff, she found a flat and bare surface, a large one, and she stood in the center of it and declared aloud, here is where I will build my house. And she got to work. It was difficult, and it was tiresome, and it was lonely work. A quiet work, by herself at the top of this cliff. It was hard carrying the wood from the forest below up the hill, carving it into the shapes she needed. She had laid the foundation and realized she needed some help. The trips into town were also difficult and tiresome, but at least not so lonely. And when she was there, people were eager to help, and when they were grateful and kind and gentle to her, she found it suspicious at first, but she grew to trust them in time. She could trade wood for steel nails and saws, she could bring fresh water from the mountain springs for those who needed it. And sometimes they didn't even want anything from her, these people. They even offered her places to live in town, but were understanding when she explained that she needed to build her own house. They loved her for who she was and wanted to help her. And it took her a long time to realize that that was not absurdly unusual behavior. But she did realize it, in time. And soon enough, she had built her house. 
But you see, when it only had a couple of rooms and one floor and was more than enough for what she needed, she thought to herself, Now that I am safe, I can build what I want. I can make this place so strong. I can make this place a fortress. And so she began the process of adding to this house, one room at a time. Secretly, though eventually the townspeople knew what she was up to, for within a matter of a few years, they realized they could see the house on the hill from miles away, down in the town now. It was a mansion. Like a large cube it was, so very high it must have had rooms upon rooms upon rooms. Countless windows all around it, large and open, staring into very simple and almost bare parlors that looked out and surveyed their surroundings. Some lovely little lounge chairs and plants, some books and paintings, but nothing of true value, not where just anyone could see it. The real question was, what was in the other rooms? The ones further in. The rooms that had no windows. What lay within there? For most, it would remain a secret. Many people in the town had come to her door and sat with her at the windows for a quick tea, enjoying a brief visit, and then left. But no one had been to the innermost rooms. The ones upstairs. The ones away from the windows where just anyone could look in. The ones that she was very careful to protect. They hadn't been there yet, anyway. With the size of the house so immense, they were certain there were many, many of those rooms. They respected her privacy, however. And that is why, when a stranger came into town one day, his hat in one hand and a small suitcase in the other, and he asked if a woman had come to live here within the last several years, they were skeptical and unsure of whether or not they should let him know the truth. They listened to him, they took care of him, they gave him a place to buy a meal and rent a room for the evening but they did not feel like breaking the trust they had with the woman who lived up the hill. However, the next morning when he awoke, there was a letter waiting for him at the inn, instructing that he could come to the house if he wished. It was signed by the woman he once knew very well and had hurt, and still had love in his heart for. He made his way up the hill. By the time he reached the top, he was already significantly weakened and exhausted. As he caught his breath, he found it taken away almost immediately by the sight of the building before his eyes. It loomed over him, tall and beautiful and incredibly imposing. All of its windows seemed to look right at him, right through him and it occurred to him that despite his initial thought of how impractical and silly they were, perhaps it was a fairly good security measure after all. 
He knew he was being watched somehow. He knew that in one of these countless windows, or perhaps through all of them by some magic, he knew that she was the one watching him. He looked at the place with his eyes wide and his heart racing. The front door opened very, very slowly, with no one there doing the opening. And he walked up to it and entered the house. He moved to close the door behind him, but it would not budge. It was remaining open. He looked into the parlors by the windows, the many of them, and he walked their parameter, hoping that she would be waiting within one of them and that this would be an easy reconciliation. He dared to hope that, but she was not there. They seemed to circle the house, these open parlors, making them feel like one long, bright hallway. The sunset had come, splashing orange through the windows and across the white walls and pleasant couches and seats and coffee tables. He sat down and watched the sun set across the snowy hills, down the steep cliff, and into the distance. He remembered, fondly, some sunsets from the past that he'd enjoyed with her. He remembered the warmth he'd felt when they had been close. Not for the first time, a tear fell from his eye at the memory. And as soon as it fell and hit the floor, he heard a door creeping open. And indeed, one appeared from within a nearby wall, and it was opening even more slowly than the first one by an invisible hand. The visitor went through it, and again tried to close it, but again it would not budge. It was as if it had never been closed to begin with. Now he found himself in the next ring of rooms, for that is how they worked, it seemed. He walked through them the same way he had the first, as though they were one single hallway. Less long than the first, but still impressively so, and wider than the first ring of rooms, and these were dark. In here there was no natural light, but lots of fire. Candles set in candlesticks on little tables, set in the walls in candelabras, hanging in lanterns here and there, the occasional fireplace even. This place was elegant and richly decorated, unique, like no rooms anywhere else. The walls were covered in lovely, richly dyed murals, depicting little stories, different little stories everywhere. It was warm and smelled of spice here, and the sound of a piano rang out, somewhere, though it sounded far away. There were little trays full of baked goods and fruits, 
Some had little glasses of water, little demonstrations of care here and there, but only little ones. These halls went on and on, and he was certain, somehow, that the firelight grew more sparse and less bright as the tunnel went on. And it grew colder, too, the darker the place became. His arms began to ache, his back hurt, his eyes were stinging from the shadows now. He sat down in one of the chairs, just to set down the suitcase and close his eyes for a moment. But at that moment another door swung open, leading further inside, not far from where he'd set himself down, and it began to slam rapidly, open, closed, open, closed, over and over. And he, shocked, opened his eyes, stood up, and picked up his suitcase again. Then the door swung open and remained open. It, too, would not close behind him again. This place did not want him to settle in. This place would not let him settle in. He realized it. He had to go on. There was no staying, only traveling through here. Visiting, for now. There was no light in the next set of rooms, the next pathway, he could tell already. He took a candlestick from a nearby table, inhaled sharply, and plunged himself into the darkness. In this circle, this long and twisting room, the halls were narrow, and they were empty. No furniture here, no firelight, nothing. As he walked through, however, he began to notice that written on the walls, everywhere, all around him, was scrawling, writing in large words everywhere. Words written in handwriting that was frantic, exasperated, angry, or tired. It changed as the sentences did. He found it hard to make out what they were saying, but he saw words indicating pain, suffering, hurt, sorrow, anger, desperation, heartbreak, sometimes loving gentle words to oneself, sometimes self-deprecating, scornful insults to oneself, too, words that lashed out at others and some that were verbatim recreations of the things he had said to her in the past. The doors seemed to know that he was here. Did the words know, too? Or were they always here, from the moment he'd caused them? Indelibly written, whether here or somewhere else. Did he ask himself this, do you think? I don't know. I don't know what he thought at this point. As the hallway went on and on, the scribbling on the wall became less and less. But just as he thought it was finished, there always seemed to be a little more. Until the moment that he realized he'd caught up with whatever was doing the writing, the words were forming before his very eyes, 
appearing on the wall in the candlelight. He's here, was written out, he could see. He followed the writing as it continued. I wonder what he wants. Has he come to apologize? What will I do? What will I say to him? Does he understand that I hurt? Does he understand why I hurt? Why has he come? Why did I let him in? Question after question coming in more frequent bursts now, over and over and over until... The next door swung open with a great scream. And the light that came from behind it was a terribly, terribly bright light. Far too bright. He ventured into the next layer of the sanctum. This one was bright as day, and his eyes stung as they tried to adjust. He was so tired by this point that he barely knew how his feet moved one after the other, even still, let alone where they were going. These rooms had grey marble statues all throughout, like an exhibit at a gallery. He did not recognize them. By what witchcraft had she made all of these? By that token, how had she achieved the effect in the previous hall, with the writing appearing on the wall? She was either a very skilled witch, an extremely talented artist, a very precise designer, or some combination of all three, all of which he was surprised by. He hadn't noticed before. He hadn't noticed a lot of things, though. He walked up to the statue of a young man holding a bow and arrow, standing beside a foal. The detail was striking. They looked so realistic. The young boy was looking down at the gentle, empty-eyed foal. The visitor tilted his head this way and that, amazed. And the statue's eyes shot up and looked right at him. The visitor staggered backwards with a horrified cry. He scrambled away from the thing and tripped over his feet. He looked up and saw another statue looking down on him. It was a young girl washing her hands by a stream, an urn under her arm. Her eyes, too, were fixed on him. He sat up quickly, seeing it, and her eyes followed him up as he stood. The boy by the foal was still staring at him, too. As he stumbled to one side, both the statue's eyes followed him, and again as he stood up. They were watching him, sentinels at the gate. These two weren't the only ones. More statues followed down the hall. No tags or plates describing who they were or what they were called or why they were here. They were not here for guests to gawk at. They were here to watch whoever entered. All of their eyes followed him as he walked, and in the cold and clinical white light that he couldn't find any source for. He felt indeed that he was being observed, as though he was the statue in the gallery. 
he went down the hall, same as he'd done several times by now. He was so tired, but so frightened, so confused and lost. All he could keep doing was walk, and he had to walk through their gaze. He had to pass by their judgment, their assessment, their appraisal. He walked and walked and realized, this hallway cannot be nearly as long as the others. I'm deep into this house. There's no way there can be this much distance. Had he turned any corners? Had he just been circling around this gallery? It was so hard to focus on where he was going with all those eyes watching him. He came upon the first statue. The young man with the foal and the bow. He had indeed come full circle. But the young man was not looking at him anymore. He was instead watching the open doorway that must have appeared when the visitor wasn't looking. The door was wide open already. There was even a stone arrow laid deep into it. The stone boy had not moved, it seemed, and yet one of his arrows was somehow fired and stuck into the door. He knew now he had to keep going. Perhaps this horrible house went on and on forever and ever, but he had to find her and deliver his message. The next room was small, the size of a closet. This was the center of the house, and it existed at the base of a giant stone spiral staircase. He began to climb. It felt like both forever and only minutes, this climb. And it didn't wind him, not like the climb up the cliff had. Because the higher up and up he went, the brighter it became, as moonlight streamed in through the window in the ceiling. It felt like forever since he'd seen a window. How dark it had become since the sun set when he first arrived, but how grateful he was for the little light of the sliver moon and the few stars that showed around the clouds this night. He entered through one more door. And the last room took up the entire upper floors. Surrounded by glass, the entire thing. How had she managed it? This was the most vulnerable part of the house. Everything open to damage from the elements. Not insulated at all from the cold here. But after the claustrophobic nature of those hallways below, he didn't mind the open, cold air so much. And this way, at the top of the cliff, on the top floor, it felt as though one was in the center of the sky. She had built all this? That music returned. He followed it. In here there were many things, soft settees next to piles of books, hanging plants everywhere so that when one looked up they could see the stars through the glass ceiling, peeking from behind clusters of leaves, 
just like in the forest. There was the sound of water, and sure enough, it cascaded from a little waterfall into a small little pond that somehow looked natural, as though it were set in earth, which was impossible since it was on the second floor, and within it, little fish, gold and silver, swimming joyfully in and out of the currents. Birds flew around here, local birds that made their way in and out as they pleased, not a cage in sight. Bats, too, gleefully gliding in the darkness. There was only the dim light of a few golden lanterns here and there, like street lamps almost. This place was extraordinary, and this was inside of her the whole time. This place was peaceful and calm, loving and gentle, safe and yet full of adventure. It felt a little maze-like as he wandered past the plants, and a few more statues here and there, though these one's eyes did not move, thankfully. A few paintings leaning against bookcases, like the murals he'd seen in the second chamber, too. She'd made them. There were journals left open. Pages of poetry, pages of diaries started and never completed. Little stories little songs. There were chairs set out in the direction to look only at the moon over the water. There were cozy areas with warm blankets and soft cushions to make sleep come a little easier. There were areas with candles and stones, little earthen pots full of herbs and spices, and precious little crystal pieces and enchanted jewels and other little magic tokens. You see, in her many years building this place up and up and up around her, she had been doing it to protect this, this safe space, this place where she could heal herself with her own power, her own strength, her own magic and her own will. This place where everything that mattered was. And it was not closed off at all. In fact, it was able to be as open and full of love as it was, because of the fierce protection the terrifying first floor offered, with its hidden doors and its stone guardians and its words of pain, and its ghostly. Ah, that music, though. That was there the whole time, throughout the whole house. He found its source, eventually. She was there, playing the piano. She stopped. Hello? She said. Hello? He said. You made it, she said. Barely, he said. She smiled and stood. She looked different, very different. She stood differently, taller, 
stronger. But she shook a little. She hadn't wanted this, but she knew he was coming, and she would welcome him nonetheless. Because if he'd braved everything up to this point, surely he had come here to say the things she wanted him to say. Surely. She just waited. She had nothing to say, and everything to hear. So she waited. He cleared his throat and dropped his suitcase. I came here to say something to you. Something I've wanted to say for a long, long time. She breathed deeply and closed her eyes. He said, I forgive you. Her eyes flashed open. You forgive me. She asked. He smiled. I do. For disappearing, I forgive you. It was hard and it hurt, but I'm willing to forget about it. Pretend it never happened. She nodded. I see. He began to peel off his gloves. What are you doing? she asked. I'm very tired. I would like to lay down for a little while. He answered. She sat back down at the piano and began to play a little. Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand. And he noticed in that moment the air growing a little cold again. A breeze blew in, extinguishing all the lamps and lanterns here. A cloud passed over the moon. The room was almost in pitch darkness. He could hear the cries of the birds and the bats still, though it was not comforting now. They were agitated. She continued, I didn't let you in here so that you could stay. I let you in here so you could know what you're missing. And also, what you'll find if you come to me with hatred ever again. And behind her he saw suddenly several faces made of stone the ones from downstairs, waiting patiently, staring at him. A cloud of bats and birds circling and screeching, so loudly he had to cover his ears. A flurry of pieces of paper with writing scrawled across them, fluttering and scattering everywhere, like locusts. And when she looked up at him from the piano, Eyes so dark he could not see within them anymore. She said, You're sure you have nothing else to say to me? He put up his hands, taking a step back as he sensed the statues sliding closer to him somehow. The birds and the bats training themselves on him as though he were some kind of prey the papers flying towards his face as he swatted them away before he had to confront the words they held. And he looked her in the eye 
and said entirely the wrong thing. Calm down. And her mouth fell open in a scream. The statues joined her in it. The birds and the bats joined her in it. And all except for her, except for his hostess, except for the person he had traveled so far to attempt to win back by diminishing yet again, who remained where she was. This was where she lived, and every part of her would protect her with all of her might. Her animal and stone guardians chased him from the place, shrieking all the way. He ran down and down the stairs. He ran through each room with its open door, until he reached the front door. His suitcase was thrown out promptly afterward, behind him, and the doors, all of them, slammed shut. She had left them open, you see, because she knew what would happen. She knew what he would say. She knew what he would do. She knew him. But that didn't make it any less painful. He made his way back home safely, having not learned any lessons. And that is the end of that part of the story. And she... She faced the pain she felt. She let the fish drink her tears. She let the moon dry her cheeks. She let the statues keep watch. The writing remain honest. And the parlors remain warm and open. I visited her there. I entered each room admiringly. Imagine such a magical place with wonders such as these. I could have spent a year in each room. I could have lived a lifetime in that staircase. But her inner sanctum on the upper floor. Gorgeous. She let me stay. She often lets me stay. We sip tea together. And we often don't say anything. It's like being home, whatever that means. She had her heart broken, so she protected it with all manner of fearsome, terrible things. But she also surrounded it with all manner of beautiful, gentle things, too. Because when your heart is broken, you need to protect it while it mends. You need to heal it from a safe place. It may take work. It may take scribbling and carving, sculpting and growing, reading and breathing, wandering and resting, weeping and laughing. It may take all of that, but it will heal. If that's of any consolation to you tonight, I am very happy to hear it. That's it for me, I'm afraid. I'm a little exhausted myself after this story. But I feel... 
good. Thank you for listening, my friends. Be well and take care of your heart. Good night. Hello, everybody. My name is Kristen Zaza, and I want to say thank you so, so much for listening to episode 173 of On a Dark, Cold Night. If you don't know me, I'm the writer, creator, podcaster, composer, etc. behind the show. I hope you're doing all right and staying well out there. Whether you're heading towards a break for the holidays or whether you know you're about to enter into an even more hectic schedule than usual, please be gentle on yourselves. If you need a big imaginary manor house to help you get through, build one in your mind. I bet it's beautiful. Maybe a nice thought to count sheep to tonight. I would like to first send out a huge thank you to Ashley Gerrell, who became a patron of the show on Patreon.com last week. Thank you so, so much for your support, Ashley. I'm so grateful that you enjoy what I create here. If you want to support the show in the same way that Ashley and my other wonderful patrons do, there are some cool perks available through Patreon. For every supporter of $1 US or more a month, you can receive access to my complete soundtrack of On a Dark Cold Night, updated weekly, and every patron of $5 US or more a month gets that, as well as access to a monthly tarot reading video I upload on every full moon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. If you'd prefer to donate one time only with no soundtrack or tarot perk, you can do so by buying one or more metaphorical coffees at ko-fi.com slash darkcoldnight. And we always have t-shirts and hoodies available for purchase at bonfire.com slash on-a-dark-cold-night. It would also be a huge help to me if you left a rating and a review for the show on iTunes. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at a dark cold night. Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast, or on my Facebook or YouTube pages, just called On a Dark Cold Night. And just a quick heads up that next week on December 18th, the Sonar Network is hosting its second annual holiday marathon. I'm quoting Sonar here, it's going to be a full day of tomfoolery with tons of comedy, games, panels, and podcasts, and other silly nonsense. And I'm going to be participating. So stay tuned to learn more about that and more specific details about the lineup. You can keep an eye on the event by visiting thesonarnetwork.com slash marathon or following the Sonar Network on social media. There's a Facebook event up for the event too, so you can check that out closer to the date. Thank you again for listening tonight, my friends. There are some threes of swords in my life that I'm working on. Probably yours too, I imagine. We might work on them our whole lives, but those heartbreaks aren't what makes us who we are. Maybe it's in the mending, the way we heal those heartbreaks, that we can grow closer and closer to that highest self we all have inside, protecting us. Food for thought. Take care of yourself. Sweet dreams. Sweet friends. Thank you.
This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar.